Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. evening together. Life is awaiting you not too far from now and uh, some of you might be saying oh thank goodness. (laughs) Some of you might be saying oh do I have to go back and wherever you happen to be is absolutely fine. And I hope that besides the practice, just the power of the practice that you've been doing, if you did nothing else but were silent for four or five days, uh, you'd be a little bit cleaned out. But the fact that you have been having some moments of mindfulness and some moments of um, tenderness and authenticity, some moments of uh, being present for some wholesome states. Um, I I hope that you can um, take what you touch here back into your life. In fact, whether or not you, I hope, or you think you will, you will, because you've planted some very powerful seeds, whether you realize it or not, that will keep on uh, unfolding, not just tomorrow and this week, but for uh, for months to come. And tonight, what I want to cover a few, uh, a couple of the wholesome states, particularly that are... Uh, I find very helpful and that will, I think, serve you uh, as you go back to your life, your daily life. Um, so far, just as a, a little bit of, a, of an overview and recap, um, we've talked about intention and the power of mindfulness and gratitude as a, an opening of the heart and opening to that well-being inside, Um, spending time on looking at the difficulties that we face in life and how we can open to them as well. Maybe you didn't bargain for that when you signed up for Awakening Joy. Gosh, we're spending a whole lot of time on suffering and and, 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 and dealing with everything gets, that gets in the way. But you know, I'm a Buddhist teacher, so you know, I've got to talk a bit about suffering. And, and also, there, there's no getting around it, that if you bypass it and say, oh, let's just have a good time, 
uh, you're missing out on a very big part of life. Life is hard. It's the first noble truth. But as you see and come to accept that more and more and, and learn how to skillfully address those difficulties, then you can open up to all of these other wholesome states. Um, we spent some time on kindness towards ourselves, metta for self, accepting ourself, and today, Jane, um, talking about self-compassion. Um, tomorrow, uh, j just as a little bit of a, the bigger picture, I'll be um, addressing a few of the wholesome states that I, I find helpful. Um, one, a foundation of integrity, and also um, the, the power of connecting with others. I want to spend uh, some time and do some exercises with you so that uh, you can uh, have a, a, a tangible, direct experience of the possibilities as you go out of how being present with others is, is such a potent um, opening to joy and well-being. Um, so we're going to save that for tomorrow because the natural flow from loving ourself and compassion for ourself is really the connection and love and um, appreciation and joy with others. But we're going to save it because um, tonight I want to talk about um, compassion and uh, equanimity, which go together, and that equanimity really leading to the, uh, the, the last of the wholesome states that I, I like to share about, which is the joy of just simply being. <clears throat> It was um, very moving in the groups. You know, usually when I, when I do retreats and I ha there's a, a team of, of teachers that I, that I teach with uh, and I get to uh, have more individual interviews. And I, I missed that on this retreat, but because of the way the numbers worked and, and Heather not being able to come, it just seemed more... Uh, uh, more appropriate to do groups uh, logistically, but um, I was so moved by uh, by the groups um, how when we're real with each other and there's uh, the armoring comes down and we're willing to take the risk of of being seen and of letting others in how the heart gets touched so easily and movingly. When somebody is willing to um, be um, exposed and, and sharing their sadnesses or griefs or memories, as you probably experience for yourself if you were in one of those groups, 
What does the heart do? It just naturally opens. And when it naturally opens, there's a kind of tenderness and uh, an access to something very beautiful and sweet inside. Without you trying to make anything happen, it's not like you say, okay, I'm going to awaken some joy now. Um, but when the heart opens, even in the face of suffering, there's a sweetness in there and a, a something that gets, that's very moving when we're touched in that way. And compassion is uh, one of the divine abodes, one of the, the sublime states, as it's called in, uh, in Buddhism. There are four of these divine abodes, or Brahma-viharas, also sublime states, all the same thing. Um, Loving-kindness, metta. Compassion, karuna. Sympathetic joy, joy in the happiness of others. And um, equanimity, upekka. Compassion is... Metta, loving kindness, turned towards suffering. It really is the same basis, that, that feeling of connection that we can have with others. But when it's facing suffering, it's encountering, suffer, encountering suffering in another, then the heart gets touched in a very um, beautiful, uh, profound way. And what has always kind of um, fascinated me is that suffering is a prerequisite for this sublime state. Compassion, the definition of compassion, one definition is the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. That there's a resonance when we let our hearts be open and touched by the suffering around us, which is different than um, feeling pity, the near enemy of compassion, what looks like compassion, but is very different, is pity, where you say, oh, that's too bad for them, and I'm glad it's not me, um, and there's a little bit of a distance. But compassion is a capacity to be there, right there, with the suffering for others, and not flinch, but be centered and able to, to meet that suffering with an open heart. But suffering is a, is a prerequisite for this sublime state. Now, suffering is not sublime. That's clear, right? So we're not talking about, oh, how wonderful it is that there's suffering in the world, but that what is evoked when we are moved by somebody else, if we can stay centered with it, is this capacity to care. It's amazing, I sometimes reflect, how we're wired up that way. We're wired up to care. We have to kind of shut ourselves down to not feel another's suffering. And many people do, of course. And we all do, perhaps from time to time, when it's 
so overwhelming. You, you know, probably in your email box, inboxes, uh, if it's anything like mine, there's, you know, 15 or 20 emails a day, all pointing to the need for response to suffering. And it would be a 24-7 job just responding to all the emails and letting yourself be, be torn by all the, the, the sorrow and the sadness in the world. So I'm not saying that you can go around with an open heart and letting it just be touched one, one moment after another. There are times that we need to take care of ourselves and we have limits of our capacity to open to the pain around us. But when we can, when we have the, uh, the energy to and the, the bandwidth to, when we really are there for another, um, there's something very beautiful that takes us out of our own drama, that's one thing, takes us out of our own head and elicits this beautiful caring heart. We're wired up. We have these mirror neurons that you're probably familiar with in the last oh, 20 years. It's become uh, quite a, a research how we're wired up and if somebody hurts themselves or stubs their toe you, and you see it, it lights up in the same area in your brain as if it happened to you. You know, that feeling, you go, ouch. That's why we go to movies, to, to see vicariously somebody's, you know, adventures, trepidations, and you're, there you are chewing your fingernails, oh God, I hope she makes it through, you know, oh, yes, yay, all right. Because we're wired up like that, because we can feel another being's experience. I came across this... Um, this little experiment that was in a, it's a wonderful book, my favorite book on compassion called The Compassionate Life by Mark Ian Barish. And he, um, he writes about this, uh, visiting this research scientist um, who put some yogurt in a Petri dish near him and placed some electrodes in the dish. And, uh, and he was there and the needle just sat there and then, then he asked Mark, this friend of mine who wrote the book, to think of a deeply disturbing emotional experience. And this is Mark writing. Rummaging through memory, I had a sudden flash of my sister's death and I was flooded with a surge of grief. At that very moment, all by itself, the needle on the meter buried itself in the red zone and then oscillated wildly back and forth. We hadn't touched anything. The box was hooked up to nothing except the yogurt. Strawberry, my favorite. <laughs> nothing in the room had changed but my feelings. When I switched my mental focus back to my surroundings, the needle went still. Okay, sorry, okay, McCready said, now think of an incident of physical pain. I called to mind a recent medical checkup that had involved taking several blood samples. The needle kicked fitfully like a man whose sleep had been disturbed. He had me remember a moment of profound embarrassment. 
I'm not telling. <laughs> and again, the needle twitched abruptly as if in response. What was being revealed here, he claimed, was that all living creatures, from microorganisms to pets to people, resonate to the field of our human heart. So we're definitely interconnected, even if it's be between a human heart and, and some bacteria in yogurt. You know? I mean, that's kind of mysterious, isn't it? It's kind of mind-blowing. He put, he put it in uh, electrodes uh, hooked up to a meter that could uh, fi feel, uh, measure some response. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, it can respond to good states too, but it was just, uh, that's what the experiment was. Yeah, water crystals. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Have you seen those water, the water crystal stuff? The Japanese uh, scientist, um, I forget his, his name. Imona? Imono, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. You just see all kinds of, of um, configurations. Just, just the mind and the heart have tremendous power to touch and also to be touched. So this quality of compassion, this sublime state, is one of the most profound expressions of a joyful heart. Sometimes we think that compassion means, oh, we've got to take care of and fix and, but it's not that at all. We, we, we know that. Sometimes simply just being there for someone is the healing. You know when you're having a hard time and somebody is just there for you? As opposed to, say, somebody who uh, really cares about you and you're having a hard time and they're saying, you know, oh, this is so terrible. Oh, it's tearing me apart. Oh, what can we do? I, oh, I can't stand this. It's so painful to see you. Is that helpful? <laughs> no. Then you got to take care of them, right? <laughs> Thank you for all your caring, but, you know, just cool out. But when somebody is just there and, they, and they're saying, wow, I, it's, it must be so hard. I just want you to know I care. We just need others to, to be there and, and help us go through our, our pain so we're not alone as we do it. There's a, um, there's a story I love uh, by uh, Leo Biscaglia, who is a, a, just a really beautiful, um, uh, wise man, who was the, um, he was a, a judge in this contest, the most caring person. And the winner of this contest was this four-year-old boy. And his mother told the story of their neighbor who, um, who died, uh, whose, uh, whose wife had, had died. And he was a, 
um, a widower and uh, very, very much in grief and just really um, having a hard time. And uh, this, this one afternoon, the, the neighbor next door was sitting on, the, on his porch and, um, and just uh, crying and, and, and weeping. And the, the boy, all of a sudden, just walked over to the, his, his neighbor, this older man, and uh, sat by him. And the mother couldn't hear what was, what was going on, but after a little while, uh, the man's sobs just stilled, and there was real peace, and they shared some time together. And then the boy came back to his mother. And as his mother was telling the story, she said, what did you say to him that calmed him down so? And he said, oh, I didn't say anything. I just sat in his lap and helped him cry. <laughs> and often that's all that's needed, just having somebody sit with us and help us go through our our pain, our sorrow, our sadness. Now sometimes there can be more that's done. And uh, as it, it came out in, uh, in one of the groups today, this is not just about sitting and being a very good breath watcher and being mindful and wishing well and sending metta to those in, in difficulty. If you are motivated to do something to make a difference in this world, then your putting that caring into action is even a higher form of joy. As Angelus Arian, who's this very wise uh, teacher, and, uh, she comes to the joy course, she speaks to the joy course, she says, um, action absorbs anxiety. That we can be so, not knowing what to do with all of our frustration and outrage and fear in the world. And yet if we do something, if we find some outlet for our caring, then we are both making a difference and finding a vehicle for all of that, um, that frustration and, and inner tension. And these days, uh, I, I personally have, have uh, found that um, I've been interested in recent times with climate change and, and what, where we're headed. And it's, it's going to be uh, probably a very difficult situation. But... Um, after reading a, a book by Bill McKibben a couple of years ago named Earth, E-A-A-R-T-H, because it's, it's, we're gonna, it looks like Earth, but it's gonna be a different Earth. Uh, and I was very moved, and uh, it kind of shook me for, for a while. And then in, uh, in recent times, I've said, okay, what can I do about this? And I've been finding different outlets uh, to do something. And it's felt a lot better to say, okay, can do something and do my part. And having a vision of the possibility that the more people are inspired 
to, to get in touch with how much they love the earth, the more they want to do something to uh, care for it and protect it. Whatever your particular heartbreak, uh, to find a way to express it. Uh, I, I recently read a book that I, I've been very moved by um, name called uh, The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism by uh, a guy named Andrew Harvey. And uh, he says, follow your heartbreak. That when you find something that is really moving you to find a way to care, to express your caring. And this is a, a kind of um, widening our intention. You know, the first day we talked about intention for real well-being. Well, the widening of that intention is finding something that uh, benefits not just you, but that benefits others as well. This is, um, this brings a greater dimension because then it's not just about me, but about others. Uh, I'll share a story a number of years ago. I was, I was going to a, uh, a conference, it was that conference I mentioned yesterday, uh, seeing the Dalai Lama, and um, it, it was in India. And when I told a friend that I was going there, she, um, and, I, and I said that I was stopping in Frankfurt, uh, it's the, the, um, it was the itinerary, stopping in Frankfurt, and she said, oh, you're going to Frankfurt, oh, then you should really see Mother Mira. And I know she had seen Mother Mira, who is this kind of um, holy woman uh, from India, and uh, she lived there, and I had heard good things about her. And I said, well, yeah maybe, yeah, maybe I'll see Mother Mira. And then she said, no, you should see Mother Mira. I said, oh, okay. She said, you, you really should see Mother Mira. And then I found out that Mother Mira granted, supposedly granted whatever you wish for to come true. I said, okay, I'll see Mother Mira. <laughs> so I arranged my itinerary to spend a couple of days in Frankfurt before going to India, Dharamsala. And um, I um, arranged so that I go two nights for a darshan with the Mother Mira. And I get there, um, there's a room full of people, about 125 people or so, just sitting in silence. Uh, and then Mother Mira comes in. She doesn't give a Dharma talk, she just is silent, you know, very easy gig, just hanging out there in silence, you know. And one by one, people come up and sit in front of her, um, and then they, they put their head down, and she does some kind of something on your neck, which was explained to me as unraveling your karmic knots, or I don't know how it works, whatever. She did that, and then you look into her eyes, and you're looking at each other, and then she closes her eyes, and that's the end of the darshan, and then, then you go. About 45 seconds, I know, because I, I timed it each one. Wow, it's just, give or take a second or two. 
and there's an on-deck circle. So, you know, when, when you're ready, you, you go to the on-deck circle, and then it's, then it's your turn, and then you go. So I went there, and I said, hmm, okay. And we, we sat in silence for uh, about half an hour before uh, this process started. And I had been starting to think for a few days before, okay, I'm going to see this woman who's supposed to grant the boon of whatever I wish for. Uh, but there I, I hadn't gotten clear on what, uh, what it would be. And then I sat in that room and I said, wow, if it's true, if she could really grant me what I want, what would I want? What would, what would really bring fulfillment and happiness to me? This is one of those times that I didn't rush up to go first. I wanted to just reflect, where is real happiness? And I thought and thought, and, um, and uh, as I thought, I thought, well, another experience? No, they all come and go. And then I thought, another object? No, they all come and go. And I said, what would really do it for me? And then I finally got clear on, on what would really open my heart and inspire me and uplift me and give me a feeling of fulfillment. And then I went up and put my head down and looked into her eyes, all the time focusing on my particular aspiration. And I don't know if she has magic powers, but in that moment, the focus in that high intensity kind of seared into my heart what really inspired me. And now, this is uh, 19 years later, I say it to myself before every talk, when I meet with people, I just get clear on my aspiration, on my wider intention, which was not about the next thing I'd get or the next experience I could have. I, I want to invite you to imagine being in that situation. So I'd like you to sit up for a moment and just imagine if you were in front of some holy person like that or a, a magic genie or somebody, some being who could grant you your deepest heart's desire, the, what would fulfill you most and get, take a moment to get clear What would inspire you? And just imagine, if you don't get clear on it, then you take your chances. But if you could clarify and put it into the universe, that life would support you in that. What would you wish for? 
what would be a sustaining source of inspiration that would share your gifts in the most beautiful way? And if you can get in touch with something, have a vision, have an image of more and more bringing this about, doing your part to bring it about. And envision life supporting you in this. And then once again, deciding and if you got in touch with something, then um, hang out with that these next days and, and weeks. Let it really work its way inside. In, in Buddhist teachings, uh, this is sometimes called having a clear comprehension of purpose. That when you have a particular vision and get really clear on it, then everything is held in the context of, of that aspiration. And also in, uh, in the Tibetan practices, Tibetan tradition, uh, this is sometimes thought of as the bodhisattva vow, where you are practicing more than just for yourself, but for the benefit of everyone. And I hope that you see that your practice here can be done in that spirit. This is, uh, this is from a great Tibetan Oh, I, who I read from the other day, Nyosho Kempo, the guy who said about in, uh, identifying enlightenment within your own stream of being. He says, we're not practicing for ourselves alone since everyone is involved and included in the great scope of this perfectly pure motivation to benefit others. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, and transformed in us and become beneficial to others through contact with this good heart which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. You're not practicing for yourself alone. You can, but the more you see that everyone benefits from your practice, the, it just uplifts the whole experience. If you have a hard time giving yourself a gift, then think of it as giving everybody in your life a gift. The more clarity and understanding and compassion you can develop within yourself. So now, this compassion, 
needs to be balanced. Needs to be balanced with equanimity. Because we can open our hearts to the suffering around us and yet it can, as I said a moment ago, be overwhelming. And so we need to have enough space to contain all of that sorrow and suffering so we're not overwhelmed. Equanimity is often the last in, uh, it usually is, in any list that it's in, equanimity is the last quality mentioned. It's the last of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's the last of the ten perfections of heart. It's the last stage of uh, the progress of insight. There are 12 stages before enlightenment. Um, Equanimity is, it's the last of the four Brahma Viharas because equanimity is a kind of, is the is the culmination of practice. Loving kindness is a beautiful, beautiful feeling. Compassion is a profound feeling. Joy is a a fantastic feeling. But equanimity is what holds them all. Even though it's not as flashy or as seemingly intense and bells and whistles as the others, it is what grounds and holds everything. And in fact, it's the last in this, in the progress of insight because out of equanimity comes awakening. Out of a truly balanced mind and heart, the mind becomes liberated and the heart becomes liberated. Equanimity Balance is one word that's often used. Centeredness is often used. It's really a spaciousness that allows all things. It's not, oh well, I don't care. The near enemy of equanimity is apathy or indifference. It looks like equanimity. Ah, it's cool, you know, or whatever. You know, this is not whatever. This is caring, but being balanced in the midst of all the ups and downs. And so equanimity holds the whole show, holds the joys and holds the sorrows, and is there for it all. This actually, by the way, um, uh, um, bringing to mind a story about how I got into how I got back my joy. Remember I, I said uh, early on I had lost my joy for a while? And uh, one turning point was understanding this quality of everything being included. Being included. I, was, um, I went to see this really fantastic uh, teacher who uh, is no longer alive, uh, an Advaita teacher, not a, not a Buddhist teacher, although he loved the Buddha, his name was Punjaji, H.W.L. Punja, or Punjaji, also known as Papaji. And this fellow uh, radiated 
joy and happiness and deep wisdom. And I was fortunate enough to spend a few weeks with him. This is in uh, 1990. And um, he talked a lot about emptiness, which is a word that's used in Buddhism very, very commonly. The profound understanding of emptiness. But he was laughing all the time. And finally, at the end of my my stay there, I, I would have a lot of questions. I had a lot of questions for him. And he said, you know, give me all your questions. And, and I'd say, well, Punjaji, I have another question. Give me your question. Give me your questions here. And then finally, at the very end, he said, any more questions? And I said, I have one more question. Give me your question. What's your question? And I said, Punjaji, when Buddhists talk about emptiness, there's often this real seriousness and solemnity, the profound understanding of emptiness. When you talk about emptiness, you're laughing up a storm. You know, you're, 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 just, you're just radiating a whole different energy. And I said, why is your emptiness so much more fun than, than ours? <laughs> This is what was coming out of me. Why? And he answered in, a, in a, a very beautiful way. He said, you know, um, when people touch deep understandings of emptiness in stillness in the, in, of a meditation, they can easily think that the stillness is the one gateway to emptiness. And anything other than the stillness is less, uh, less rich or profound. But this is not so. And then he went on to say, you know, my emptiness, let's see if I can channel it. My emptiness, my emptiness includes sorrow and joy and love and and anger, and happiness, and sadness. Nothing is rejected from my emptiness. And then he started laughing. <laughs> and it woke me up. Of course, I was rejecting everything not profoundly still. And I reconnected with the fact that in a deep sense in my heart, everything is part of the fabric of life. And that was, that was my own understanding of the fullness of the Dharma way back. As the, the famous statement, samsara and nirvana are one, but one can get kind of lost in a, in a misunderstanding and just focus on the stillness. And that was as beautiful an expression of equanimity as anything. His emptiness included it all, included the sorrow, included the joy, included the love, included the confusion and the ignorance. 
This is really what equanimity is, to allow for it all. There's a spaciousness that comes from that capacity of the heart and the mind to say, yes, this too. As Ajahn Sumedho says, I, I read from, uh, from him, uh, I think before, uh, simple instruction, oh, it's like this. Oh, sadness is like this. Oh, love is like this. Oh, hatred is like this. And there you are sitting, as you've probably seen these last few days, that you have the whole show inside. And if you reject any of it, then you're going to be putting energy into avoiding that part of being human. But if you can hold it all and say, yeah, this too is part of being human, and there's a heart as wide as the world that can hold it, that's where the real compassion can come from, your willingness to be with it all. And the equanimity that comes in the face of that deep compassion, there's space for it all. You, I don't know if you've seen, let's see, no. You, you, maybe you've seen the, um, uh, the figure of Kuan Yin, who's the, the bodhisattva of infinite compassion. And there's some, uh, some beautiful statues in its spirit rock of, of her. Maybe, maybe you've seen some uh, in the posters. There's a very famous Kuan Yin that's in uh, Kansas City, of all places, um, of the Kuan Yin in relaxed repose. And she's like this, just very relaxed, opening to all the sorrows and the suffering in the world. And there she is, meeting all the sorrows and the suffering, but not being disturbed with, by them. Ah, yes, there's this too. So this is what we're, we're called on to do. And if we get so enmeshed in the sorrow and the suffering or overwhelmed, we need to get some space. We need to say, ah, okay, this is all part of life. Sunrises and sunsets and tsunamis and earthquakes and um, deep love and connection and deep confusion and ignorance and cruelty. It's all part of it. Can we open our hearts and our minds wide enough to include all of it. And out of that equanimity comes a spaciousness that allows us to relax into our own being. And this leads to this joy of being, this joy of simply being, of all the the states, the, 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 the ten that I write that are all in Buddhist teachings, the first nine are about cultivating, cultivating loving kindness or compassion or gratitude or intention, wise intention or integrity or things like that. But really the Buddha was, was talking about all of those states 
leading to the state beyond cultivation where you're not trying to make anything happen, where you're simply just relaxing into your natural state of being. So this is a not, not a cultivation, but a not doing. And maybe you got a little glimpse of it. I tried to point to that on the, the meditation on just resting in awareness. And it's not something that you've got, you can't try hard to rest in awareness. Right? Come on, really try hard to rest in awareness now. No, it doesn't work. It's more a matter of deeply relaxing. And what that calls for is giving yourself enough space to do that. We live in a very frenetic life. And when we are in that kind of intensity, it's so hard to remember to rest in simply being, in simple awareness. In effect, I thought I'd do this. I pulled it up on my computer because I didn't have the, the article. I want to read to you a little bit of an article by my favorite uh, writer, a guy named Mark Morford, who writes every Wednesday uh, on uh, SF Gate. Uh, and this was uh, an article he wrote a while ago. Uh, what was the title? Um, Hurry up, get more done, and then die. <laughs> Oops. Your, wait, if I can just get this off. Your terrifying word of the day is microtasking, and it comes by way of a relatively humble, ostensibly helpful article I read via one of those perky little do-it-yourself blogs that exists to tell you a million ways to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time management because, well, if that's not the true meaning of this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple. When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds, why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? What sort of things? Fast things, little things, otherwise inconsequential things you don't care about otherwise, like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voicemail message, retweeting someone's Twitter blip, or giving a momentary damn about something you need not give a damn about otherwise. But hey, what else are you going to do? Breathe? Feel? Merely exist? What are you, a hippie? <laughs> it's, a it's a fascinating and, yes, terrifying idea, really, that if you could just maximize your output a little bit more, if you could cram into all open white space another thing to do, wow, think of all you could get done by the end of the day. Think of how much you could get checked off your list. 
We are, by and large, utterly terrified of silence, stillness, spaciousness, the doing of nothing as so to feel the totality of everything. Meditation, for most, is disquieting and strange. Deep quiet feels weird and dangerous. A void aching to be filled. The internet has us convinced that the world is a roaring fire hose of urgent information, and if you can't swallow it all, well, something must be wrong with you. In any 48-hour period in 2010, says a stunning bit I just read in The Atlantic by way of entrepreneur Yuri Milner, more data was created than had been created by all of humanity in the previous 30,000 years. And I read about this study and it was up to the year 2005, that was when the study was done. And in 2010, in that 48 period, more than 30,000 years. By the year 2020, that same amount of data will be created in a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard. It is no longer possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed, chatting with Siri, and waving to the closed caption TV cameras. It is no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path and not feel the urge to check email, to find the nearest Starbucks, hipstamatic the hell out of that beautiful fallen tree. You cannot just sit in your car alone in a quiet country road without the GPS beeping that you took a wrong turn <laughs> as OnStar politely blows up your car. <laughs> How easily we forget Time expands, time contracts. Work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do 10 things in an hour or one thing in 10. You can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day. <laughs> and time will look at you like you're utterly insane as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. You can conversely microtask until your heart implodes and time merely will laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. <laughs> Mark Morford, M-O-R-F-O-R-D. Just Google him every Wednesday. He's the best. So, this idea of just uh, the name of that was hurry up, get more done, and then die. <laughs> yeah. So this is really what we're working with here. Not just to find compassion to our, our problems, or somehow cultivate some wisdom and clarity. All of that is very, a very potent source of, of well-being and happiness. But what we're really doing is finding a place of deep peace right inside of us. The, 
the peace that surpasses, surpasseth understanding, as it said in the Christian tradition, it's right inside. There's home right inside. And the more you're able to just rest in this being, the more all those beautiful qualities come out of you. They're not obstructed. The love, and this is again, straight Buddhist psychology, the, your Buddha nature, your metta, naturally shines through when the mind doesn't constrict and obstruct. Your compassion naturally shines through. Your joy naturally shines through when there is resting in your being. That's who you really are. And that's who we have to remember who we are. And the more you touch it, the more you remind everybody around you. And the more also that you can just listen to the truth inside. You know, you don't have to figure, this came out in one of the, one of the uh, groups, you don't have to figure it out. Did I talk about that here before? You don't have to figure it out. In fact, the more you try to figure it out, the more the mind gets in the way. As I mentioned in that group, there's this beautiful line from the Third Zen Patriarch, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. All that comes from resting in your being and it's like learning to listen to the truth that's right inside. That's what we've been doing here. We're learning to listen to the truth in this moment, in each moment, and what is happening now? Oh, now there's breathing. Now there's a thought. Now there's a sensation. Now there's a sound. Now there's a, a deep emotion, a beautiful emotion. Now there's a hard emotion. This is the truth of what's happening. And we're learning to get better and better at listening to the truth in each moment so we can hear the truth right inside of our hearts. The image that I, I love that expresses that is of the, um, the Tibetan uh, great yogi Milarepa. Uh, if you are familiar with Tibetan iconography, you can always tell it's Milarepa on the Tanka, the, the Tibetan um, uh, painting, because he has his, hair, his hand to his ear, listening to the, to the songs of the Dharma listening to the 100,000 Dharma songs. And what we're doing is learning more and more to quiet down enough so we can listen to the truth right inside, which is coming from a very different place than the finger wag that says, you better not blow it, or if you don't do this, something terrible is going to happen, or Let's get on with it. Who, don't, you, don't you realize, you know, something terrible can happen? All of that is not the voice of wisdom. But when you can quiet down enough and really hear that voice of truth and wisdom is supportive, is loving, and can direct you just where you need to go. Not because you're trying to figure out but simply because you're letting the truth move through you in that relaxation. And that there's simply listening to the awareness. 
the awareness knows. And when we can get out of our mind of figuring out and simply rest in being, we feel connected with all of life and we feel the joy moving right through us. I'll close with a, a poem that uh, I love, another Dana Falls poem that points to this, this getting out of the way. Settle in, settle in the here and now. Reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell. Nothing to do, nothing to be, but what you are already. Nothing to receive, but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run towards. Just this breath. Awareness knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath. Awareness waking up to truth. I'll read it one more time. Settle in the here and now. Reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell. Nothing to do, nothing to be, but what you are already. Nothing to receive, but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run towards. Just this breath, awareness, knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath, awareness, waking up to truth. So let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.